Well, I believe that Yukos was Putin's first foray into trying to uh, test the West. So that, to me, was the very first time that he tested the West, and the West fell flat on their faces. They did absolutely nothing to help the Western shareholders in Yukos. That's Bruce Missamore. He grew up in Ohio and spent a lot of time in the oil business in London and Houston before being hired in 2001 as chief financial officer of Yukos, then one of Russia's biggest oil companies. I'm Lawrence Steffi. Welcome to the final episode of our series, Putin's Oil Heist, Bruce Missamore's first-person account of the Yukos affair. In this episode, we'll be connecting the dots between the expropriation of Yukos in the early 2000s by the Russian government and the 2022 invasion of Ukraine. We'll also try to put the Yukos affair in some historical context. I first met Miss Amore in 2009 when I was writing a business column for the Houston Chronicle. Even though he'd been retired for about four years by then, officially at least, he handed me a business card with the Yukos logo. I hadn't spoken to him in years, but when Russia began its invasion of Ukraine in late 2022, sending oil prices soaring, I reached out. Later, we met for lunch in Houston to discuss this podcast. He's still handing out those business cards with the Yukos logo. I wondered if the Yukos affair, as a business story, really had any connection to the invasion. Missamore insisted it did. Yukos wanted to embrace Western standards of capitalism. That was part of the reason they hired Missamore in the first place. The company wanted his financial expertise to bring American accounting and governance practices to the company in hopes that it would lead to a listing on the New York Stock Exchange. About 20% of Yukos' shareholders were American. But when Vladimir Putin's government trumped up tax charges and used them to seize the entire company without compensating those shareholders, the U.S. government did nothing. Now, could they have done something? Yes, they could have made government-to-government claims on behalf of the shareholders that were harmed by what Yukos suffered and what Mr. Putin had done. It was the largest expropriation in history. And nobody did anything. The State Department actually put together documents to submit to the Russian government in the U.S., but they never submitted them because they were always fearful, and we were getting the same thing today, of Mr. Putin irritating Mr. Putin by submitting the documents. And he's a nuclear power, and we have to worry about this. So here we are, a private company, and Yukos, no shares in Yukos were owned by the Russian government until the expropriation. And it's exactly the same arguments that we're hearing today. As Missamore sees it, the lack of response from the West only emboldened Putin. Yukos was a Russian company that was courting top executives from the West. And as we discussed in earlier episodes, Putin worried that foreigners would wind up controlling Russian oil interests. But he also had another ambition, rebuilding the Soviet empire. He had said that the worst thing that ever happened in his life was the fall of the Soviet Union during his lifetime. And so he was deeply impacted by the fall of the Soviet Union and, of course, was totally opposed to what had happened with you know, what happened around the Gorbachev-Yeltsin years. And so when he came into power, he was putting out all these hints and the West had these hints for years. The lack of response from the West became a pattern 
as Putin sought to expand Russian control in the region. Mr. Putin's next step, of course, was Georgia, and he uses as his excuse, well, these are Russian-speaking and Russian genes, and we have to protect these people. And so he attacked two states in Georgia, and that was at the end of George W.'s reign as president. His next target was eastern Ukraine and Crimea, and in all those cases, the West did absolutely nothing. So the message to Putin was, well, go ahead, you know, we're going to wring our hands and, you know, all the newspapers are going to criticize you and whatever, but we're not going to take any military action to stop you. So here we are today, after the first foray with Yukos, exactly the same arguments, and now he's decided to take on a whole country. Ms. Moore believes that Putin had far grander plans than taking control of Ukraine. Had that invasion gone as he expected, he likely wouldn't have stopped there. And if he's really trying to put together the Soviet Union again, his next logical target, if he could have taken Ukraine, would have been Moldova, right next door to Ukraine, because then he had a military base. And after that, I would think he would go after the rest of Georgia. He might go after the Baltics, but then he's taken on NATO. If he took on the Stans, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, uh, Turkestan, all those, he wouldn't have NATO to worry about. But those people are enjoying their freedom from the Soviet Union, and so they would probably put up a fight too. The resistance put up by the Ukrainians seems to have halted Putin's thirst for conquest. But when Misamor sees the devastation in Ukraine, he can't help but wonder how many lives might have been saved if there had been a stronger international reaction to Putin's past aggressions, including Yukos. You know, I think Yukos was the start of him trying out, well, let's see what the West will do and what the West won't do. And here we are today in the inaction on behalf of the Western powers to let him do this has led to, to what we're experiencing today. Ms. Moore also mourns what Russia lost under Putin. The Russian leader's hold on power has come at the expense of the ideals that brought Ms. Moore to Moscow in the first place. The promise of Western-style capitalism, democracy, and a free economy. The work he did at Yukos helped sow the seeds of a better system. His regret is that it was never given a chance to grow. I think we accomplished a lot, and that all just got tossed out the window, of course, by Putin. But the Russian people are basically good people. The Russian government is awful. But the Russian people were quite willing to accept going the other way. Putin has maintained power by giving them material items. He's made their standard of living much better than what it was in the Soviet Union. He knows he has to do that to keep up his degree of popularity. But the Russian people could be easily talked into going a different direction and would embrace it. But Putin won't let that occur because he wants to control the country. He's definitely an autocrat. He's a dictator. And the Russian people... One of their weaknesses is that they're willing to allow that, based on hundreds of years of history, to occur. So they're very docile beings, and they're scared. Russia today is not unlike the Soviet days. It's not back to the Stalinist days, but it's getting close. What's more, the government's crackdown on independent media means it's difficult for the Russian people to get an accurate view of the war in Ukraine, because the Russian government controls the information they receive. So they're being lied to. Now, when the Russians really start understanding what's really going on, will they continue to believe the propaganda or won't they? 
I don't know, but see, rebelling against Putin comes with dire consequences now. I mean, uh, thousands of people have been arrested for demonstrating against the war, and the Russians are trying to shut them up. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back to Putin's Oil Heist. The Yukos affair may have predicated the political events that have unfolded in Russia in the almost 20 years since Mikhail Hartikovsky was arrested, but it also had an influence on other companies' attempts to do business there. See if any of this sounds familiar. In 2008, Bob Dudley, the American executive who ran a joint venture between BP and the Russian company TNK, fled the country. BP had first invested in Russia in 1997 and later agreed to the joint venture with TNK. BP wanted a controlling stake, but the Russians refused. Eager to gain access to Russian oil reserves, the British energy giant accepted the 50-50 deal. Before it was announced, Putin himself warned BP CEO John Brown about the arrangement. An equal split never works, he said. Missamore actually had a connection to BP's decision to invest in Russia. He knew John Brown from his time in London with Marathon Oil beginning in 1979, and he had met with and encouraged Brown to invest in Russia prior to the TNK deal. One of the companies Missamore suggested that Brown consider for investment? Yukos. Perhaps Putin already knew what was coming. BP invested $8 billion in the TNK deal, and Brown appointed Dudley to run the venture. But eventually, it devolved into the same tensions that pervaded the Yukos deal. The Russians bristled at Western efforts to control the operations. BP's Russian partners had the backing of Putin, who still had the same concerns about Westerners moving in on Russian oil assets. There were reportedly break-ins at Dudley's apartment in Moscow, and then he received word that the police intended to detain him. There were even reports that Dudley, who later became chairman of BP before retiring in 2020, was found to have poison in his blood. Dudley wound up fleeing Russia and the venture was sold to Rosneft. BP wound up with a 20% stake in the Russian company, which it is pledged to sell in light of the Ukraine invasion. Dudley's story, of course, bears many similarities with Miss Moore's own. The home burglaries, the detention threats, fleeing Russia, and of course, the presence of Rosneft as the company that winds up with all the assets. As he had with John Brown, Missamore met with many of the oil majors that wanted to invest in Russia. They were interested in the Yuko story and wanted the perspective of an American on the ground there. At the time, Missamore encouraged their investment. Now, he says, had he been able to predict Putin's descent into autocracy, he never would have recommended that other companies invest in Russia. Those Western companies that did enter Russia in the late 1990s and early 2000s, amid hopes that the country would globalize, adopt the rule of law, and open itself to foreign investment, have scaled back over the years. ConocoPhillips, which set up a project with Rosneft in 1992, sold its stake and ceased all operations in the country in 2015. Exxon and Shell both have maintained a presence there, but both said they were pulling out because of the Ukraine invasion. The promise that Russia once held for Western oil companies has largely evaporated. The country's oil fields are mature, and transporting oil from their remote locations has gotten more difficult and expensive. The world, and companies like Shell and BP, 
are shifting their focus away from oil in favor of cleaner fuels. Misamore continues to watch the events in Russia closely. In fact, he was even one of the candidates to be U.S. ambassador to Moscow during the Trump administration. These days, he's enjoying his retirement in northern Arizona, where he's the co-owner of a local winery. Still, the Yukos affair has taken a toll. An interesting aspect of the whole Yukos situation is even though I was one of the top oil executives in the world, no oil company is going to put me on their board, particularly if they want to do business in Russia, of course. But also because of the tax allegations in Russia, that's a blot on my background that's totally unwarded. But nevertheless, I'm not considered for director positions, even though I was you know, one of the top execs in the industry, simply because of these incorrect and illegal allegations that the Russians had made. So I've never been able to go on big company boards because of this taint caused by the Russians. Even so, Miss Amore has no regrets. Despite everything that happened with Yukos, as he was retiring from that company in 2005, he had discussions with Royal Dutch Shell about becoming their CFO, which would have allowed him to maintain some involvement in Russia and its oil and gas activities. That didn't work out, but he's still very interested in what happens in Russia, and he continues to hope that something will change the country's apparent autocratic future. I never would have given up the experience and I accomplished a lot more working for Yukos than I ever could have with a highly developed Western company. I never, ever would have given up the experience of going to Russia. I was very sad that it was cut short by Mr. Putin. But if I could have stayed there, my deal with Khodorkovsky was I would go and be the CFO for five years. And as I put it to him, if I'm still having fun, will go till I'm 60. And then 60 would have been the end of it. I would have retired at 60. But as it was, I retired at 55. We didn't get to the additional five years, but I think we could have had a huge, huge impact on Russia. Where Russia and its oil industry goes from here is anybody's guess. Oil accounts for 60% of the Russian economy. If demand declines, as most major energy companies predict it will in the coming decades, it could take a major economic toll. What's more, Russia's foreign policies have led to sanctions that may leave it increasingly isolated from the rest of the world. And while Putin won't remain in power forever, it's unclear if his successor will be a true reformer or Putin protege. The Yukos affair may have faded from the headlines, but in looking back, it serves as a stark reminder of what might have been and how we got to where we are today. I'm Lauren Steffi. This concludes our limited series podcast, Putin's Oil Heist, a production of Stony Creek Audio. I'd like to thank Bruce Missamore for joining me on the program and sharing his story. If you'd like to know more about Bruce's experiences in Russia, watch for the forthcoming book from Stony Creek Publishing. You can check out our website and sign up for our newsletter updates at stonycreekpublishing.com. Thanks for listening.